Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled, And Such Were Some of You. Today on Words of Grace, I want to give a bit of a follow-up to a radio program that I aired three weeks ago entitled, A Hospital for Sinners. In that message, I spoke about how we are to confess our faults one to another, as the book of James says, so that we can pray for each other and find healing. And my eventual point in that message was that in confession of faults and our admittance of our own sinfulness, a church body can foster a sort of environment that causes those who mourn over their sins— to feel more welcome worshiping Christ and drawing close to Him. In other words, if the church is projecting a sort of superiority over others, and if they have the judgmental attitude that often accompanies that feeling of superiority, well, people who struggled with sin in their past, or perhaps they still struggle with sin, and don't we all— will feel too ashamed to go to church. And that is so contrary to everything that we read in the gospel accounts that, frankly, it ought to make us tremble. The notion of a little child of God who is afraid to go to church because they feel like the church will judge them harshly when they mourn over their sins and want to draw close to Christ. Again, that ought to make us tremble, the notion of that. So today we revisit this concept of the church being a hospital for sinners with a special focus on, number one, the reality of our total depravity and our salvation from sin by Christ, that, to put it another way, we're all rotten sinners and Jesus has saved us by His grace. And number two, I want to watch this sort of scene, weeping sinners, coming to Christ and being welcomed by Him, play out in the gospel. There's a couple of specific instances that I want to look at, though it happens all the time in the four gospels, people coming to Jesus, weeping over their sins and desiring to be with Him, to worship Him, to follow Him. People encounter Him, they feel drawn to Him, their hearts burn for Him, and if a person is weeping over their sins and they're desiring to be with Jesus, he never says, you know, your past is just not what it ought to be. But he says, follow me. Now, it's very fitting for me to begin our message today with a very blunt and I would even add stern reminder. This is a bit of a fundamental, sound, biblical theology sort of preface that actually might even go contrary to what some modern Christians believe about the nature of man and salvation. But here it goes. While we preach Christ, and we preach love, and we preach how Jesus welcomes us, as we will see from the gospel, it is also an absolute, fundamental, biblical fact that until the Holy Spirit works a work of regeneration, quickening, the new birth, whichever biblical term for it that you want to use— Until God works this work of regeneration in our hearts, we are dead in trespasses and in sins, and we feel absolutely no remorse for our sinfulness whatsoever. 
To be clear, a person who is unregenerate might regret when they are caught in their sin, they might regret the embarrassment that comes with their sin being outed. They may lament when the police apprehend them for committing a crime. They might despise every moment that they are in jail to the extent that they regret doing what they did because they are now suffering the consequences. But the unregenerate feels no remorse whatsoever for the sin that he did in the sight of God. He is not sorry for the sake of being sorry, though he might lament his situation. Now, I've used this phrase a few times, dead in trespasses and in sins. That comes from the book of Ephesians chapter 2, and it's a statement that I wish every single believer knew and would commit to memory, because I don't believe people understand the level of depravity that we are in prior to regeneration. The sinner before the new birth is not merely sick. He's not merely sleeping, but he is dead in trespasses and in sins. The Holy Spirit has quickened us when we were dead in trespasses and in sins, as Ephesians 2, 1 says. And before this new birth, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. It was natural for us. Naturally speaking, we were children of wrath. Now, what changed that? What intervened in that? Was it your repentance? Was it your righteousness? Was it your decision? No, it was nothing that had to do with you because you were dead. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved. So what made the difference in our lives was this quickening, this new birth. That's why we feel bad when we do that which is wrong. It's why sin leaves a sickness in our stomach when we used to gulp it up with no consequence to our conscience. And so to reiterate, when we are dead in sin, prior to quickening, we feel absolutely no remorse whatsoever for the terrible things that we do, the sinful things that we do. Nor do we have any sort of inherent internal respect for or guidance in that which is either sinful or holy. In other words, as far as the internals of a person, prior to salvation, though someone might tell him that murder is wrong, in his heart, he's not bothered by it. He's not bothered by stealing. He's not bothered by fornication. He's not bothered by many of the terrible, wicked things that people in this world do. Prior to the new birth, Romans 3 says that we neither seek God nor do we fear God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2 says that the gospel is foolishness unto them that perish and to natural men. And those are one and the same. A natural man is them that perish, them that perish are natural men, and Paul says that the gospel is foolishness unto them. Those terms describe people in their unregenerate or reprobate state. Speaking of the reprobate, that word means void of judgment, as we have recently emphasized on the broadcast. Well, where do we get this 
good judgment from then, if reprobate is void of judgment, where do we get good biblical sound judgment? The judgment, the sort of thinking and discernment that the Word of God would promote to us. Well, certainly the Word of God is full of it, but remember that the Word is foolish to the reprobate. So the answer is this. The law of God is written on our heart at the new birth, according to Hebrews chapter 8 and other passages that I could share with you from the Word of God. So from the heart after the new birth, because God writes His law upon the fleshy tables of our heart, as 2 Corinthians says, from the heart after the new birth we know, thou shalt not commit adultery. God writes that on our heart. The seat of human emotion, the innermost part of our emotional and spiritual being, not the beating organ in our chest, but the seat of human emotion, thou shalt not murder, is written on the heart. Thou shalt not steal, is written on the heart. From the heart we know, thou shalt not commit adultery. God writes that on the heart. And again, prior to the new birth, we are so desperately wicked that when we do hear a command, and listen to this, when we do hear a commandment that comes from God, the sin in us makes us want to violate that commandment. This teaching comes from Romans chapter 7, in which the Apostle Paul says that the law, prior to his salvation, did work in him all manner of concupiscence, not because the law is bad, but sin took advantage by the law and made him work that which was evil. Now, the example that preachers often give, if you have a little child and there's a drawer in your house and you tell the child, just don't look in that drawer. You can't open that drawer. Which drawer of every drawer in every chest or every dresser in your house is that child going to want to open the most? The one that you said not to look into. Why? Because that law worked in him all manner of concupiscence. You ever notice that people want to drive five miles an hour over the speed limit? Why do they want to drive five miles an hour over the speed limit? Because they know they can get by with it, and they're pushing the envelope to the greatest degree that they can. The sin in us, even now, works concupiscence. That word concupiscence, by the way, is a funny word. We often don't understand what that means. It's a strange word, and it simply means forbidden desires. The law works all manner of concupiscence in us, or forbidden desires. So all that to say this, until salvation, quickening, people do not mourn their sins. They do not weep in shame before God. They do not feel drawn to God. Fathom this then, the importance of us receiving every single person who comes to us in humility regardless of their past, if someone is believing and confessing and mourning over their sins, this is a sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not someone to be judged and scorned and criticized and driven away. Quite the contrary, we have found another brother or sister in Christ when we find someone mourning over their sins, wanting to learn about Jesus. And so to that type of person, to the person struggling, to the person mourning over their sins and desiring of Christ, but reluctant or ashamed, I say to you, come, come to Christ. He will give you rest. 
He promises in Matthew, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you laboring? Are you heavy laden? Christ has been revealed to you if you feel drawn to him according to that same chapter in the book of Matthew. Come to him and find rest. Come to his church. Worship him in spirit and in truth. Be baptized in his name. Take communion and show his death until he comes. Commit your life to him who has saved you. If you are a person who feels drawn to him, if you're a believing, confessing, mourning person, come to Jesus. Now, a passage that I want to share with you in connection with this concept is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. The context of this chapter begins with the church as an arbitrator of civil disputes between members. This chapter ends with an exhortation not to commit sexual sin or other things such as idolatry before transitioning into thoughts on marital duties, the due benevolence that husbands and wife owe one another, and thoughts on being married, thoughts on being single. But right in the middle of this passage is an interesting statement regarding the pasts of some members of the church of Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Read through that list of behaviors that prevent one from entering into the kingdom of God. You have fornicators, those who are engaging in sexuality outside of marriage. You have idolaters, those who are idolatrous, adulterers, or people who are unfaithful to their spouses effeminate and abusers of themselves with mankind have reference to homosexuality. And then you have those who steal, the thieves, the covetous. It might surprise some of you to hear being covetous in the same list with these other things, because I think in America we're all affected by covetousness. And then you have drunkards and revilers and extortioners. And Paul says, know you not that these types of people cannot inherit the kingdom of God? Now, before I say anything else, let me say this. Some have attempted to make verse 9 a church discipline passage. Verse 9 is not a church discipline passage. While it is true that we would need to enact discipline on someone who leaves the way of truth for these behaviors, especially if they are unrepentant, Paul's point is one regarding salvation and our lives before and after. He lists several sinful behaviors, and he says that such will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sometimes the Bible uses the word kingdom with relation to God's people here, the kingdom of heaven, which is at hand. And sometimes it uses the word with reference to the final eternal phase of God's kingdom. The parable of the wheat and tares, for instance, is an example of the kingdom of God being used as a term to describe all of God's people who are under the kingship of Christ in that final day 
when the wheat is gathered, the tares have been separated away from them, and they go to be with the Lord harvested forevermore. So sometimes kingdom means living in the blessing of God's kingship today. Here in this world, the kingdom is within you. It's not meat and drink. Every born-again person is a citizen of it. But through repenting of our sins and believing the gospel, we enter into the gates as we follow Christ. We are in the kingdom when we are following Christ. And I often like to use the example of an American citizen when he goes into another land, when he goes into a country. He's still an American citizen, or she is still an American citizen, but the rights of being in America are not afforded to them. And it can be a very dangerous and lonely place when a person leaves their country and goes into another land. But once they come back into America, they enjoy life in America and they have all the rights that are afforded to them as American citizens. It's a very similar concept with the kingdom of heaven here in this world. We press into it. We go into it by repentance and baptism and believing his word. And this kingdom is at hand. It has been at hand since the first century when Jesus and John the Baptist and all of the apostles went preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But you and I can be citizens of the kingdom, translated into the kingdom of his dear son, as Colossians says, but not in the gates of the city, as it were. So let's ask this question. Which phase of God's kingdom is this talking about, here in the world, or that final phase? Here's the answer to that question, in my opinion. Either, both. But the important part is what follows. All of these behavior prevents someone from entering into the kingdom, and I would say here or in the world to come. Now, if you're guilty of that, and you just got worried, listen to me very carefully. And such were some of you. What made the difference? This means that in the church at Corinth, there were fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, covetous people, drunkards, revilers, and extortioners. In the church at Corinth were people who had done these things at one time in their life. What made the difference? If you answer that question and attribute their welcome into the church— they're a part of the church at Corinth, to anything that they did, you're missing this next statement. What made the difference is not that they did this, that they turned, that they repented, that they walked a new way, and certainly they did because they were church members. They had pledged their life to Christ. But what made the difference is that they were washed, they were sanctified, and they were justified by the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. In other words, God had saved them. They are no longer these things. Now, I remind you that we are simultaneously justified and sinful. But in the sight of our holy God, these people were not these things anymore because God had saved them by his grace. And we trust they had attempted to flee from these lifestyles when they became a part of the New Testament church. Go and sin no more. But the fact remains that they were at one time engaging in these sinful behaviors. And what made the difference in their life was not their repentance or any other thing that them or any other human being had done. What made the difference was the sanctifying, the washing, and the justifying that God does for us. I believe washing here has reference to the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. And by the word of the Son of God, the Holy Spirit does quicken us when we are dead in trespasses and in sins, wash with the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. As you read in the book of Titus chapter 3, we are sanctified 
both through the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ, that word sanctify means to set apart for holy usage, and we are vitally sanctified by the Holy Spirit when we are quickened, when we are changed, when we are made new creatures in Christ Jesus, when we are drawn to Christ. When were we justified? We were justified, that word justify means to declare one righteous. We were declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ when Jesus was upon the cross of Calvary dying for us. When Jesus hung upon the cross of Calvary and he suffered as if he had lived our wretched lives, though he were completely innocent, and when he died, he gave us his righteousness because he took our guilt upon himself and he died for us. That's literally the teaching of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In Christ, we are made the righteousness of God. And so the reason these people in Corinth are no longer fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, covetous people, drunkards, revilers, and extortioners is because Jesus has taken their sin from them. They are washed, sanctified, and justified. So this isn't a church discipline text. This is a salvation text. And this is all of us. If you think, oh, that church has some pretty bad people in it, and our church is a lot better than that, then my friend, you are mistaken. Because we all have issues that we deal with that would have condemned us to hell rightly without the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, to remind you of what we've been emphasizing lately, the church is not some sort of a museum for holy relics. The church is not like the Pharisees in their community that believe themselves to be holier than thou. The church is a hospital for sinners. Now, I want to look at a couple of examples in the time that we have left on Words of Grace, admitting that the time that we have remaining is short, and so we will have to be brief. Do you remember the story of the woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8? This is called by theologians and scholars the pericope adultery, and some modern so-called Bible scholars claim that this actually isn't Scripture. But listen— Theologians through history, men who were respected in their day, men who have given us church history in writing, have defended this passage. And early witnesses go as far as to say that this passage was removed from the Bible because men did not like what it taught. We're Bible believers here on Words of Grace. We're not skeptics. And so I commend John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 to you as the Word of God, canon, inspired of God to be preached and used. And if you ever hear anyone causing you to doubt that this is the Word of God, then I would invite you to listen to them no more. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, you know this story. It's early in the morning. Jesus goes to the temple. He came. He sat down alone. The scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up, 
and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted of their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, I do want to emphasize that Jesus tells this woman to go and commit this sin no more. But I also want to emphasize the fact that he says, Neither do I condemn thee. After telling all of these bloodthirsty, hypocritical men that if they are without sin, they can cast the first stone, to which they all walk away. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. What does Jesus do to the woman taken in adultery? He reassures her. His salvation of her, his forgiveness of her, his commitment to her, neither do I condemn thee. Those are powerful words. Here's another example, Luke chapter 7. You can read this from verse 36 to verse 50. Jesus is invited to eat in a Pharisee's house named Simon, and a woman of the city, which was a sinner, knew that Jesus was there, and so she brought an alabaster box of ointment. She comes in and she stood at his feet behind him. The way they sit at tables in this day would be to be on their knees, their feet behind them, and she begins to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hairs of her head. It was an embarrassing scene. It was a dirty, matted mess. She's kissing his feet. She's anointing him with the ointment. She's worshiping. She's ashamed. She's wretched and sinful, but at the same time, she feels drawn to Jesus, and she knows that he is her only hope, that he is all her salvation. She's willing to go in and embarrass herself in front of a judgy, religious, elitist Pharisee named Simon. This man, Simon the Pharisee, when he had seen this, he said within himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him. Jesus answering unto him, because Jesus knows all, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he said, Master, say on. Jesus would go on to tell him a parable about two debtors, one that was forgiven a lot, one that was forgiven very little, and asks him, which one is going to love more for being forgiven? And he says, I suppose the one that has been forgiven much. And he says, thou hast rightly judged. And then Jesus rebukes him. He says, this woman, Simon, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil, thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee that her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And then he looks at this woman in verse 48, and he says, Thy sins are forgiven. After hearing those two accounts, please remind yourself of the way Jesus interacted with the religious elite, the Pharisees, the lawyers, the scribes, etc. He flips tables over and chases people from the temple for preying on his people financially. He rebuked the powers that be for their legalism, their pride, and their hypocrisy. But to weeping sinners, 
Sinners with a past like we all have, Jesus speaks comfort. The last thing that I want to include today in our broadcast is a warning to churches, a warning to those who follow Christ. If we do not receive his little ones because of their past, listen very carefully, we risk judgment from our Lord Christ Jesus. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 21, the harlots and the publicans enter the kingdom of God before the Pharisees. Let us take heed that we welcome and love and feed every single sheep the Lord Jesus Christ sends in our midst. He is sending them to us so that we would care for his children. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received the broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. Address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741, or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.